Welcome to Weight Loss and Wellness for Real, the podcast where people like you get the practical solutions and support you need to permanently lose the physical and mental weight so you can feel better and live the life you want in the body and mind you want. If you're looking to overcome your stress eating, overeating, binging behaviors, and move to a place of freedom with food and your body, you're in the right place. Hello, everyone. Thanks for tuning in and listening. Today, I'm going to go over last week's podcast on the addiction pathways and break things down just a little bit. Also give you some practical strategies that you can take away and maybe some questions you can ask yourself to guide yourself to some practical ways of implementing the information into your daily lives and reaching possible goals you may have of maybe it's losing weight, maybe it's stopping overeating, maybe it's stopping the binging cycle, maybe it's just trying to find that optimal health. So let's quick go over the basics of last week's interview with Dr. Pete Delanoy and the biochemistry of sugar addiction and how to break the cycle. I hope you are enjoying the show and if so, that you're finding something valuable. And if you do find things valuable in this show, I wonder if you would consider becoming a Patreon of the show. It's really easy to do. You can scroll down to the bottom of the episode that you are listening to, and there will be a link on how you can support this podcast. You click the link, it's just a few more clicks, and you can become a Patreon for as little as 99 cents a month. I would really, really appreciate it as it really is what helps keep this podcast going, me putting up episodes every week. And if you are already a Patreon of this podcast, thank you so much. Thanks to all of you for listening. So the theory that we learned about last week posits that there's a survival switch we hold that has been developed through evolution. Dr. Pete gave examples of many animals who have this same switch and that we are no different as humans. It's this switch that turns on to urge us to eat lots of sugar, carbs, fructose, etc., in order to quickly store fat to get the liver to switch into the state of storing fat quickly. And, and this is, was to survive back in the day. And we needed this during times where food was very scarce and when we were out hunting, hunting and gathering uh, to survive. And when this switch is turned on, there is a shift in metabolism, a shift in our brain, as well as a hormonal cascade that occurs within our body. And this shift is basically a shift from burning fuel for energy, where most of us want to be in these days, to storing energy, where most of us these days do not want to be in that state. The metabolic shift from burning to storing fat is activated by the fructose uric acid cycle. And this is turned on by specific thresholds of hyperglycemia, which is high blood sugar at the wrong times, by alcohol, by fructose, by sugar, by glutamate, remember processed meat, um, stress, and hypoxia. So let's quickly go over the definition of sugar Um, because we didn't get into it that much last week, but basically any processed food. So remember, you know, anything in a bottle, bag, or box. And and by the way, there are exceptions to that, but for the most part, anything in a bottle, bag, or box is going to be processed. And then also all carbohydrates break down into sugar. All carbohydrates break down into sugar. So sugar in a general sense means any type of sugar, any type of carb, so 
crackers, bread, pasta, rice, starchy vegetables, and actually all vegetables are carbs, but many veggies have very low carbs, like greens, for example. And then of course, also fruit would be considered a carbohydrate, breaks down into sugar. So definition of processed meats. Basically, any meat that has been modified in order to improve its taste or extend its shelf life. So bacon, which I know sucks <laughs> for everyone who loves their bacon, um, any deli meats, sausage, hot dogs, any fast food meat, you guys, any fast food meat is heavily processed and um, is a processed meat. Any packaged meat typically has additives, any packaged meat typically has these additives. So heads up here, if you, if you think you're getting, um, you know, if you go in, if you kind of have some of a knowledge base on this and you go in thinking that um, you're getting a meat that has been packaged and it says nitrate free, this really doesn't mean anything because they are still using natural nitrates like salary powder. And according to this theory would still be a negative. So your best bet with meat is to check the ingredients. And if the second ingredient is salt or celery powder, you know it's a processed meat. Again, the second ingredient is salt or celery powder. You know that it's a processed meat. By the way, also if sugar is in that list at all, hello, super processed, okay? Another way to do this is to check the use-by date on the meat. Um, if the expiration date you know, is longer than a few days, it's probably a processed meat. Fresh meat um, is going to have a really quick expiration date. Okay. Now, one of the biggest things I want you to remember from what we talked about is the threshold piece. So each of us, due to genetics, our environment, et cetera, we're going to have a threshold of when this switch turns on. You may be able to have a beer every evening with a healthy dinner and your switch is never thrown. I may eat a healthy dinner every evening and for one week I have a beer every night and my switch is thrown. Or maybe you eat a heavy carb sugar diet and your switch hasn't been turned on, but then you stop exercising, which exercising has been keeping your blood sugar in check even with the high sugar carb diet, and so now your switch is on. Maybe you can get away with processed meats here and there, but the moment you start to add alcohol and sweets into your diet, your fat storage, you're in fat storage switch mode. So this is so important because it really means this is about really starting to pay attention and getting to know yourself so well. What might you want to try to cut out to see if you can get out of the storage side of things and switch into burning? The threshold depends on all things we are consuming and the amount of time that we are consuming them in. Okay, so remember, when we are in the storage state, we are also producing systematic inflammation. So this means insulin resistance, immune system response, and then because of that, there's an alteration in nitric oxide, which signals, which, well, which affects the elevation in blood pressure, which is not good. And then we have the molecular hormonal switch that happens with food reward, and that is the dopamine reward system that we talked about, and this includes that Delta Fos B, we kept mentioning that Delta, Delta Fos B protein that we have known for a really long time in the literature. It's a molecular switch that works in the addiction process to gradually convert that feel-good response that happens immediately with a drug, with sugar, with alcohol. You know, like 
<clears throat> those first times we're having the substance and we feel really, really good, kind of that high, that Delta Foss B actually is that switch that helps adaption take place so that you continue to have the thing, but there is no longer the high because you're adapting to it. But there continues to be the urge for more and more and more to get to that high, which never happens anymore. And then next comes Kreb, just real short. Kreb is a transcription factor. I knew about it just because um, I knew it was... Uh, it it's it's it has an overexpression in cancer patients. That's how I knew about Kreb. So not great. And then we get uh, vasopressin, and remember that is the hormone that creates aggressive behavior and works in concert with oxytocin, right? So when this hormone, when oxytocin is expressed, we feel love. We have we feel good. We have that appetite regulation that it also does. So when vasopressin is high, we are going to have low oxytocin. Again, not what we are wanting. Okay, so the fructose uric acid cycle is connected to sugar, alcohol addiction, cardiovascular disease, Alzheimer's, fatty liver, obesity, diabetes, gout, and kidney disease. Back to our threshold before the switch turns on. Com this is completely dependent on how much glucose is showing up at the liver, again, remember, in a defined period of time due to what we are consuming. And not only that, but the proportions, the amounts we are eating, the volume we are eating, the timing of the macronutrients due to stress, due to hypoxia. So I'm repeating myself here, but it's so important. We don't know what the threshold is and we are all different. So we all have different thresholds. So some examples of a meal where thresholds most likely will be crossed and that switch to storing fat will be turned on. So maybe things like three beers, right? That's 500, and 500 to 550 calories. Um, it contains glucose, fructose, and ethanol. Remember, alcohol, ethanol. Uh, something like then maybe we have four slices of pizza at you know 1,300 to 1,500 calories, four slices of pizza. That would be about mm, 600 calories of carbs. And then we also have the hit of glucose and fructose from this. Or maybe we're talking breadsticks. Um, two breadsticks is about 350 calories. Uh, 220 of that would be carbs, right? And that breaks down into glucose and fructose, all right? So those are just some ideas on, you know, the processed food that the standard American diet tends to contain. That's absolutely probably going to be flipping most of us, most of us into that fat storage state. Uh, one other thing that I was thinking about after last week and something I've thought about before and kind of dug into the literature on is the binge restrict cycle, right? Or the binge purge cycle. But um, just I'm just using me as an example. I, I was never able to purge. I was binge restrict or binge um, over exercise. And I was in this cycle for so many years and tried so hard to get out of it so many damn times. And obviously... At this point, I do look at that cycle as an addictive cycle. You want to stop it so badly, but literally cannot. I, I like to think of this as an addictive process as it puts a little separation between me and what I was doing, what my behavior was, meaning it makes me feel less ashamed. It, it also, and that's what allows me to talk about it really openly and try to help other people. I feel no shame in any of that. Um, because I know the real me, me, authentic me, true me, wise mind me, knew 
this was not good and was trying so hard to make it stop. But that addictive pathway was what kept getting the better of me. Not my failure to not have enough willpower, not me being a crazy person. And I don't mean that I don't take responsibility for it. I still had to own and take responsibility for my behavior. And by the way, so do you. And I did have to start to do the work, but just knowing it wasn't just because I was a flawed human being. I was not flawed as a person. And in some ways that just helps so much. Knowing that addiction pathway creates so many automatic and ha- habits and thoughts through what's happening in your body, through the biochemistry. If you start to understand that, you too can start to separate your behavior from being a flawed person to understanding there is an addictive cycle that maintains itself through molecular biochemistry in your body. You are not flawed. Your body is actually working exactly as it should, as it was designed to do, as it was designed to survive. It's just that now we live in an environment where there is so much... um, just opportunity of food and cues and triggers and everything. So it is just that now you need to take control and interrupt the cycle. You still don't get to say, um, well, this is all my biochemistry and how I was designed to be. And there's all these cues and triggers out there. And so this is you know, just how it is. I'm never going to be able to make change. No, that's not the point. The point is now you get to take control and interrupt the cycle without the shame of being a flawed human. So maybe that new reframe can help you find a little relief so you can start to do the work to interrupt your own cycle. Okay, so this is what I know about me. And so maybe you can ask yourself some of these same questions for yourself. Over many years, I have learned many, many things about myself. I am quite, this, and this is just a practical sense with food, I am quite tolerant of carbs. I have worn a glucose monitor for many weeks, continuous glucose monitor for many weeks at a time in the past. I've done many experiments while wearing that and really learned um, really my responses to certain foods. I learned that alcohol was really tough for me. Um, I had a really heightened uh, glucose response that lasted for a long time after I would consume alcohol. Um, I also, through experiments with that continuous glucose monitor, found that I do fine with starchy carbs. Like I do awesome with potatoes and things like that. And I do even better if I combine my potatoes with protein. So a takeaway here is just to consider if you have an opportunity to wear a continuous glucose monitor. You can um, now get them without a doctor prescription. You do have to pay for them. Uh, They can be a little spendy, but might be worth it. Typically you purchase them and they last for two weeks. So you have two weeks to kind of conduct some experiments. Um, You could also do cheaper method, do the finger pricks, just buy a glucose monitor at Walgreens. You can do the finger pricks 30 minutes after a meal, two hours after a meal, and three three hours after a meal. Um, However, this is time consuming. You have to be really disciplined in order to get the really good data. Okay, so I also, um, you know, I think I'm probably super tolerant to carbs because uh, I move my body in some way almost every day. It's just a habit for me. And that is going to lower my threshold and heighten my tolerance for sugar, for stress, for even alcohol, which I seem to have a tough response to. With all this said, when I look at my diet, 
I have currently, I have moved into many more carbs than I was say five years ago where I was pretty low carb. I was under 50 carbs a day. Um, I lived that way for many, many years and I did end up with a thyroid disorder that to this day I am still working to correct. I am getting there, but it has been years and years and years of um, trying to heal from that. Um, I found out that I did have to leverage up my carbs for my health and my athletic performance. But when I look at my diet currently, I still only eat around 100 to 150 carbs a day. So compared with what someone eating the standard American diet is, I would actually be considered low carb, even with the 100 to the 150. Most people on the standard American diet are taking in minimum of 300 carbs a day, and that's a lot. Okay, so some questions I thought about later, and I look forward to discussing with Dr. Pete at a future time. These were just things I was thinking about. He may listen to this and be like, oh my gosh, no, you do not understand biochemistry at all, but these are just thoughts. These I like to philosophize. These are just thoughts I'm having. So you know, one of my thoughts was, is this switch possibly more like a dimmer switch? So for example, if you go three months without any of these substances, remember he talked about that three months to get that switch to turn off. Um, okay. So you go three months without all the substances, uh, that switch theoretically turns off and you're kind of feeling stable. You've got tons of energy, you're doing good. And then all of a sudden you eat, um, like a whole bag of cookies, right? Like a whole bag. I mean, I'm talking like 30 cookies. Well, like I'm thinking Oreos or like say, um, from a bakery, like you eat four huge giant cookies. Um, I can tell cookies are on my mind. Not good. Uh, is it possible that instead of the switch going on immediately and that light being super bright, right? That instead you turn up that dimmer switch. So it starts to go up, right? The dimmer switch starts to go up. So the light starts to turn on, but it's kind of dim still. So then if I don't do the cookies the next day or I don't do the cookies for a week and I kind of get back on track, um, can I get back into that burning space quicker than having to wait a whole other three months to get it out of my system? Okay, so those were some thoughts. Um, I thought about alcohol a lot during this one, and some of you are not going to like what I have to say here, but I, I hope you will still like me and just not like what I'm saying. But I did think about alcohol a lot, and I am a little biased because honestly, at this point, it's like I just don't even drink. Um, you know, I always make the joke, I'm just not fun like that. I've always been that way. Now I kind of, over the years, understand what my body really doesn't feel good on alcohol. Like I do not have a high tolerance for alcohol. Um, so I think what happened was I would drink and it just was not awesome. And maybe in a way that's a blessing, right? Um, it was not a blessing in that I felt often, like I said, like I just wasn't fun and socially for a while it was awkward for me. Um, but at this point, I just don't really drink that much. My fiance makes incredible cocktails. And so I'll sometimes have literally sips out of those, but I no longer have a make me one or even half a one. Um, I don't think I've even had a sip of alcohol now for many months. So again, like, you know, I'm a little biased here. And also I know my body so well, I just, you know, feel so, so, so shitty when I drink even a little bit, my sleep just suffers so bad. Um, it's just not worth it to me. And, but anyway, so my thoughts on alcohol, I immediately went to thinking, about friends um, who are much younger than me, probably 20 years younger. And I do hang out with a wide variety of ages due to 
Um, typically my social scene is around climbing and around mountain biking or biking. And so you're, you're, you're friends with people who are 20 years younger than you all the way up to 30 years older than you. Right. So I'm thinking about, you know, my friends who are 20 years younger than me that I'm climbing with up at the crag and mountain biking with, and then every ride or every day at the crag includes hiking up beers and, you know, drinking, (laughs) you know, during the day or, you know, immediately drinking after, um, the riding. And you guys, I'm not saying you shouldn't do this. I'm just saying, these are things I'm thinking about. Right. And, and I'm just thinking about, um, I'm just thinking about that, that they're probably going to be feeling it in 20 years from now and that they still may want to be climbing optimally at the levels they are climbing and, or, or riding at the levels they are riding. And, um, you know, I guess more than anything, I just hope people understand that alcohol can play a really big role in our metabolic health as well as a disease process. And, and so just at least understanding the information, um, point it, really what I'm trying to say, whatever age you are at, (laughs) pay attention to these things, pay attention to these things. Because even if you're not dealing with any disease or you're not overweight, or you don't have any health conditions we're talking about here in 10 to 20 years, because of what we consume right now, it has effects in the future how you treat your body now, what you put into your body now is literally the gift you give to your future self. All right, enough on alcohol. Dr. Pete recommends um, 50 total carbs. By the way, not net carbs. Those of you who count carbs, (laughs) all carbs count. Don't fall for the marketing on the little protein bars that are like only five net carbs, you know, when they actually have 25 whole carbs, just it's all carbs, net carbs, just forget that term even exists. We're always talking about whole carbs. So he recommends 50 total carbs to start out to get on this, this path towards health. And some of my thoughts and questions that I'm asking myself about this is just due to my own experience and working with clients and how I work with people. Sometimes we do that kind of method. I have many clients where we've done that method. Um, we've taken them immediately down below 50 total carbs a day. It's like ripping the Band-Aid off. You know it's just one fell swoop. And there are some personalities that can do this and it totally works and it works well for them. But then here's what I would say in my experience, over half at least of the population I have worked with who rip the Band-Aid off like that, um, they go for maybe a few days or a week and then typically there is this over-consuming or even binging behavior that happens. And so with that population, my experience that has worked to get them there is by actually slowly changing things, making very small, doable changes on a daily basis. So even for my excessive drinkers out there, we will do things like make plans where they are still allowed to drink. But instead of the four drinks in the evening that they're used to having, we whittle them down to do two drinks a night. 
Or, you know, we're shifting from the amount of alcohol in each drink that they're having. You know, we're lowering the amount of alcohol in each drink. And we do this for a week. And we slowly taper them down. Because as they slowly taper down, these people feel more and more willing to keep going. They're feeling better and better. And it's easier and easier to taper down more. So now we're eventually getting to where they want to be without the binging behavior without the over-consuming behavior and then having to start all over again. And um, obviously this is not just with drinking, but this goes for food too. So after talking with Pete for a while, you know, some of my thoughts are we are so different individually. And that really was a theme that both both of us talked about last week. I do wonder if the approach of ripping the Band-Aid off for some and then going slow and steady for another group of people or people with specific personalities, which by the way, I would say is kind of me, um, can really get us all to the same place where that switch is turned off. Again, just thoughts. <laughs> okay, also one takeaway that you might want to really think about is that we all have these new GLP-1 inhibitor drugs out there, right? The weight loss drugs out there on the market right now, and they are extremely expensive. Um I mean, they are definitely out of my price range, that's for sure. I'm assuming many of yours as well. And so the idea being that GLP-1 receptor, and because if you can modulate this pathway that um, the the fructose uric acid pathway, if you can modulate that, you are going to be able to do the same thing with the GLP-1 receptor, which means if you can get this pathway under control, if you can get the switch flipped, you will experience things like not being hungry, not having food thoughts all the time, not thinking about food all day long. Really this appetite regulation piece can bring you so much peace and you know it's working when your metabolism is metabolically adjusted correctly. When you are in that burning state, you are not only burning fat, but you are not hungry. So you're losing weight, but you're not hungry like I'm sure probably every single one of you listening has been on a diet where you're just trying to willpower through the hunger to not eat, right? In this case, and this is a beautiful state to be in if you have to lose weight, in this case, you are burning the fat and you're not hungry, both at the same time. It's awesome. You're not thinking about food. You can move into other spaces of your life. You can focus on other things. Your hunger and fullness regulates on its own. You start to drop weight. Your body weight then regulates. You just feel really, really good and energetic. I know I'm in the metabolically burning state because I know my body so well. I've been doing this for years and years and years and years. And I know when I'm not thinking about food all day long because there were just so many days I was thinking about food all day long. So now those are just not thoughts I have anymore. If you're not wanting to do the weight loss drug, then, well, this might be one thing you want to try to implement. Dr. Pete also talked about um, within his clientele, he looks for categories of people. He, he spoke about a couple clients, one who he watched who really had no sugar desire, but was eating lots and lots and lots of processed meat. And so, you know, I'm thinking about people who go to alcohol, maybe they don't do sweets, but they use alcohol. And I'm thinking about people who only use sweets and that would probably be me, you know, no alcohol, no processed meat, but it's sort of like, if you could maybe take a look at yourself and if you know, where do you tend to go? Um, are you going to savory? Are you doing the processed meat? Are you doing a lot of alcohol or are you just doing sweet? And kind of looking at yourself as a category. So if, if you notice that, if there's a major player there, 
that you realize, then could you back off on just that one thing for now? Like that could be kind of the starting point. Oh, oh, oh. And by the way, that hypoxia piece, making sure that we're breathing through the night and maybe that's all you need to fix, to get that switch from storing to dimming, right? Um, to really get that switch off again is to figure out, are you sleeping through the night? Maybe literally have a sleep study done so that you know if that hypoxia piece is a big player in this for you. Uh, another one, another big player for the pathway is stress. So maybe you want to go at it first from trying to manage stress, learning coping skills um, for stress versus trying to hit the food or the alcohol first. I am just such a big proponent of these things, getting to know yourself, know your biomarkers, look honestly at what and how you consume food and alcohol, take a long look at your sleep hygiene, your ability to deal with stress. Once we get honest with ourselves and really own our behaviors and truth of the matter, that is when and only then we can take some control to make the changes we really want to make to get to where we, we really want to be in our health and our bodies. I did want to just throw in here, um, because I do have background in, and, and training in addiction and um, recovery. So I wanted to tell you about some best evidence-based practice for treating addiction. This is any kind of addiction. The therapies that currently have the most rigorous empirical support for treatment across a wide variety of substance use disorders include CBT. So that is cognitive behavioral therapy, which typically works to change thoughts, attitudes, and behaviors as, as they relate to the substance, increasing life skills, um, particularly the ability to cope with stress and the environmental cues that can lead to substance craving and use. And then also learning to remain engaged and compliant with treatment, which could include taking medication in addition to behavioral therapies. And also there are quite a few medications out there to help with addiction as well. I have one in particular that I see really, really good results with. Um, obviously I don't prescribe medication, but I'm well versed in the medications out there that um, have a lot of evidence behind them, ones that don't, but they are out there. Uh, typically, when we think of um, drug and alcohol addiction, the first step is detox and then therapy or therapies, but there are lots of evidence and also protocols currently being used and have been used for a while to help with addiction through using therapy and or medication first to reduce cravings and then slowly reducing the amount of the substance. I also just wanted to mention that there are support groups out there as well, because when it comes to any type of addiction, we do know that having support of a therapist or group therapy definitely is evidence-based. There, there's lots of um, success in that. Um, but when we think about support groups, many of us think about AA, right? We're, we're thinking about um, Alcoholics Anonymous and um, there are food groups out there like OA, Overeaters Anonymous, and they're all run on the same premises, the same sort of pillars. And there is no doubt that these groups have worked wonders for many, many people and will continue to do so. However, there are alternatives to these groups that many people just don't know about. And that's because AA has been around forever. Um, most therapists who refer clients to groups, they just automatically send them to AA because they just that's all they hear about. 
Um, but there really are some other alternatives that have really great results as well. Um, that's just not in the norm, although they are getting more and more out there. So in particular, groups like Smart Recovery, Life Ring, SOS, Women for Sobriety, and Modern Management, these groups differ in a few significant ways from AA. So maybe you've gone to AA or OA before and you've just been turned off. Um, you know, Just understand there are other groups and processes out there that work that are very different from AA. Um, and, and the big difference, I would say, is the emphasis on internal control. AA emphasizes the individual's power, or OA as well, emphasizes the individual's powerlessness over the substance, so over the alcohol, over the food. Um, and, and these alternative groups I mentioned instead see individuals as having adequate power within themselves to overcome addictions. Another big shift is where AA and OA portray the battle against addiction as a lifelong one that requires vigilance every single day. These alternative groups take a shorter term approach. It's a little more relaxed, presenting themselves as tools that people in recovery can use until they no longer see the need for them. Um, and, and also these alternative groups, most of them refuse to give lifelong labels of addicts to people, whereas in AA and OA, you are forever and always an addict. Um, I know quite a bit about the SMART recovery program, so let me share a little of that. It, it stands for Self-Management and Recovery Training, and it's centered on four points that emphasize enhancing and maintaining motivation to abstain from the addictive behavior. It's learning how to cope with urges and cravings and using rational ways to manage thoughts, feelings, and behaviors, and balancing that short-term and long-term well, balancing short-term and long-term pleasures and satisfactions in life. And the program's tools are based on evidence-based interventions, including, you guessed it, CBT, or Cognitive Behavioral Therapy. I really just wanted to throw all that in, just in case one of you out there, actually, I'm sure there's quite a few of you, are thinking about addiction for anything and, and thinking about getting some help. I just want you to know it's not all about AA. It's not all about OA. There are lots of different ways to find freedom from addiction. And here's what's also pretty cool, and this is what I love. There is growing evidence, which is quite powerful, that physical exercise, mindfulness techniques, and TMS, or transmagnetic stimulation, may help reduce substance use as well. Okay, one final wrap-up to end. Look at these things to make changes. If we're talking here about the food part, okay, um, or the, the uric acid um, the fructose uric acid pathway that we've been talking about. Um, look at these very practical things to start to make changes within this pathway. So sugar and carbs, processed foods, processed meat, alcohol consumption. Remember, all alcohol is ethanol, right? It's not just the high carb beers, it's all alcohol. Hyperglycemia, remember that's high blood sugar. Stress and sleep, or and hypoxia is what I mean by that. And then other things to think on. Check your exercise levels. Too much, not good for the pathway. Too little, not good for the pathway. Learn to manage stress. And remember, this is a skill. Uh, managing stress is a skill that can be learned no matter the stress happening in your environment. Sleep hygiene is huge, Right? So check on that. Check your relationships. Foster loving ones, that oxytocin that we want. Establish community and then consider therapy if you need it to get there. 
bottom line on all of this, get curious, experiment a little, start taking a look at your lifestyle and look at a place you can make one simple change for one month. See what happens. Or (laughs) the others of you were ripping the Band-Aid off method works for you. Maybe rip the Band-Aid off. Take it all out and eat only whole real foods. We know this for sure. All of our health will improve by eliminating all processed foods, optimizing our sleep, and learning tools to manage stress like a boss. All right. I hope you found something useful and helpful. And if you did, would you please share this podcast with someone you think might find it interesting or helpful that really helps the podcast um, to grow and helps me to continue doing what I'm doing. And if you have not subscribed or um, not rated the podcast from whatever platform you're listening from, if you would do so, that also helps a ton. I really appreciate all of you being here and we will talk soon. Did you know you can find a lot more help from me on my website? Go to heatherheinen.com. Heinen is spelled H-E-Y-N-E-N and get in touch with questions on all things I offer like online courses for overeating, weight loss, goal attainment, and also my coaching and counseling services. Just a reminder that this podcast represents my own opinions. The content here should not be taken as medical advice. The content here is for educational and informational purposes only. Please consult your doctor or healthcare professional for any individual medical questions you may have.